Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Uh, it's the Super Bowl week, Peter King Podcast. You're going to hear from Zach Taylor, the coach of the Bengals, a little later in the podcast. Had a little pre-dawn ride uh, in Zach Taylor's car with him to Paul Brown Stadium. Stop for coffee. Very congenial fellow, which you'll hear in, the, uh, in my conversation with him. Uh, and a lot to discuss this week. Man, it just never ends in the NFL. But uh, I want to welcome in Paul Burmeister, who is taking a break from the Olympics to, uh, to help me uh, get this podcast through. And, and Paul, welcome. And I, I, I have to tell you, you know, my wife and I were Olympic nerds. <laughs> and the other day, it was Sunday afternoon, here comes the ski jumping. And I say, hey, wait a minute. I know that voice. And I knew you were doing the ski jumping, but it just didn't occur to me. But anyway, so we, we watched ski jumping for a while. And what was really impressive, A, I think you pronounced every name correctly of the Norwegians. <laughs> you know, and all these people who have got, who've got names that don't really uh, look very common. But the other thing is, you're telling me little tidbits about every one of these guys who are flying over the earth for whatever, six or eight or 10 seconds. And I just thought to myself, of all the sports, I don't think I could do luge, going 70 miles an hour on a sled, okay? Uh, but I definitely could not do ski jumping. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, Paul, when you, I, I, I'd love to hear your thought when you're watching this. Do you say at some points, these guys are out of their minds. What are they doing? I say it all the time. And I, I said it a lot more in 2018, Peter, because I was, I was actually there four years ago. And when you can put your eyes on it and you have that yeah. kind of perspective and scale, it really stands out. And when we're in Pyeongchang, I actually climbed to the top of the jump at the end of the Olympics and kind of looked down. And it's, uh, it, is, it is super scary and daunting. It just gives you all kind of respect for these guys and, and, and the women who do it all the time. But um, one of the cool parts about ski jumping, calling it, is it's very rhythmic and formulaic, Peter. So, like, I know that the athlete's going to be at the top of the jump for 5, 10, 15 seconds, and I know it's a really good time if I can farm out a really good nugget about that man or woman to share it because there's always going to be those seconds at the top 
where they have that game face on and they look nervous. And if I found something that's interesting, I know there's going to be a window to, to share it with the audience. So that's, to me, that's been the most fun part about calling this sport. Paul, I'm, I'm really curious. This is such, because of COVID, it's such a weird time. And I wonder, for those who don't know this, the vast majority of NBC's announcers are doing this from booths um, in Stamford, Connecticut, because of all the restrictions on COVID by the Chinese government. Look, I'm not, I'm not banging on the Chinese government. I'm just saying that they want to make absolutely sure that nothing goes wrong. But tell me what it's like you know, to walk into an office building, you know, in Stamford, Connecticut, walk through the hallways, go into a darkened room and say, wow, I'm going to be on national TV right now. <laughs> Thankfully, um, I've, I've had some practice at it. I did it with water polo uh, this summer for the Tokyo Games. So it kind of, I kind of have a, a feel now for what the specific challenges are. And I remember reading Al Michaels' book a couple of years ago, Peter. And it, one of the things he said about doing his job the right way was, he's like, I've always figured, no matter what the sport was, if, if my voice, if my tone kind of matched the excitement and energy level of the crowd, I was doing a good job. And that's one thing that we as broadcasters don't have when we're doing these things from, you know, from a thousand or 2000 miles away. And you really kind of have to teach yourself to elevate your voice at the right time and have your energy match what's happening in that event. Because when you're there, you take for granted that the crowd lets you know where your energy and voice should yeah. be. And when you're in a box in Stanford, Connecticut, you don't have that reminder. Um, so everybody can kind of describe their job as got to be a pro. And I think uh, part of being a pro right now, if you're a broadcaster at NBC, is you have to remember when your voice needs to match the event because the crowd isn't going to tell you that. That's really interesting. And, and, and as far as, like, do you find yourself at all, like, reading a lot of stuff about the NFL? Or have you been trying to just monofocus on the Olympics for these two plus weeks, you're going to be involved with it. Yeah, the the uh, last 12 hours, Peter, since you and I emailed, have been a nice a nice break where I've come out of the Olympic tunnel, and that's really what it's been 24 seven since our last podcast last week. I have been all about ski jump in the Olympics. I've, I've got these cards in front of me, Peter. I've got I have 105 of them that I've I've been making for each one of the athletes. So that's this is what my life has been the last week. So it's been really nice the last few hours to put, put those aside and, and think about the NFL to get ready to talk with you. Wow. Well, it's, it's very cool. But let's, um, let's set the stage for what has been a wild week in the NFL um, in terms of lawsuits, coaching, a lot of different things. But also the biggest game of the year is on tap, Super Bowl 56 on Sunday. I want to I want to preview a little bit about that and just sort of how strange it is. Normally, I wanted to tell a quick story about me for for those who are used to listening to me on this podcast. Um, normally in a Super Bowl week, I fly out on Sunday and then I am with uh you know in and around the teams all through that process all through the course of the week. But 
when I decided this year, obviously, uh, last year, there was some question about whether even to go to the Super Bowl, because everything was going to be virtual. Everything, you weren't going to be able to touch any of the players or coaches. Um, this year, we didn't know what the rules were going to be. And so when I was deciding in December what to do, I said, okay, I'm going to go. But in talking to people around the NFL, there was a very good chance that there would be no person-to-person media availability until Friday. And so, you know, everybody thought, well, okay, why go out on Sunday just to sit in a hotel and be on Zooms with people? So I decided I'm going to go out Wednesday. And look, Friday is going to be the closest that anybody gets to be person to person. I'm pretty sure it's going to be in person, but you will be, you know, pretty far removed from the players and the coaches. But, but be that as it may, I think what changed obviously this year is that the Rams are in it. So obviously they're there locally. And then the Bengals decided to fly out today, which is Tuesday as we record this, they will start practicing at UCLA on Wednesday, and so they'll have a regular Super Bowl practice week. So it's, it, it isn't quite what it seemed like it would be six weeks ago. One other note, I did want to explain a little bit about, some of you might have read my column in which uh, I talked about writing to work with Zach Taylor, uh, the coach of the Bengals, and you'll, you'll hear from him later in the podcast. But I wanted to just sort of explain why it is that I try to do that. I started it with Doug Peterson uh, five years ago when the Eagles were preparing to play the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And I just thought, you know, instead of me trying to go get a sit down with the coach in the off week between the game, why not share a car ride with car ride with him? And then when he gets to his facility, he's done with me. He's, our, he's done his interview. It's 5.30 in the morning or whatever time it is. <clears throat> and he's ready to go to work. He doesn't have to carve out time during the day. That's the way I sold it. Peterson bought it. Since then, uh, Sean McVay bought it. Andy Reid bought it. Zach Taylor bought it. So it's becoming a little bit of a thing for me. Um, and one of the things I find is that you know, because I'm meeting these guys for the most part, either where they live or close to where they live and getting, I'm alone with them. I was alone with Zach Taylor for 35 minutes. And so I can walk away from there and kind of get a feel for how Zach Taylor feels going into this whole process. And in riding through his neighborhood uh, on the east side of Cincinnati and in, you know, stopping at the Starbucks and, and all that stuff, he, you can get a read on how Zach Taylor feels coming into this game. And I thought two things. Number one, and I don't know Zach Taylor well. I've talked to him before several times, but I don't know him well. I thought two things. Number one, it's very, very interesting how nonplussed and how unpressured he seemed when I was with him. He was basically a don't worry, be happy guy. Secondly, 
he does not want to be known as the student of Sean McVay going into this game. He loves Sean McVay. He knows that there's a, a big reason about why he's here is because he was on Sean McVay's staff for two years. The first year as a receivers coach, second year as a quarterback coach for Jared Goff, the year that they got to the Super Bowl. He understands that. But his path to this moment, it, yes, is he a branch on the Sean McVay tree? Yes, he is. But I can just tell, and, he, and I'm, I'm telling you, all respect to Sean McVay. Love Sean McVay. But I can just tell that he doesn't want to be known as the guy who's in this game because of Sean McVay. You know, the old joke that, uh, the old joke, the new joke, Paul, that people say that <clears throat> they are, uh, you know, guys get coaching jobs because they had a cup of coffee with uh, Sean McVay. You know, Sean McVay's barista at Starbucks uh, is going to be an offensive coordinator next year. And it's just, it's kind of a joke, but <clears throat> it's, a lot of it is true. The branches of the Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan tree have been very, very fruitful. So anyway, those are a couple of things I wanted to uh, explain. A couple of just impressions I have coming off this week. And I don't know, maybe I said something you want to respond to, but Paul, give me a thought or two. A couple of things. First of all, about driving to work with Zach Taylor and other coaches that you've gotten to know. I, I think a number of things. Number one, you're meeting them in a place, kind of as you pointed out, where they have to have that time anyway. They're not putting time aside for right. their work from the game planning, so it's smart that way. But I also think, and I don't know if strategy is a part of this at all, it's probably more with convenience, but these head coaches are so savvy that when you sit down to talk to them in their office or on a Zoom, whether they know it or not, they kind of snap into media mode a little bit. And if yeah. you're riding in their car with them having a coffee – and they trust you anyway, maybe they're a little more laid back and they're not going to give you any secrets, but maybe they present in a way that's a little bit more natural. Uh, and I, I think that's a great idea. Second, as far as, as far as um, Zach Taylor, not wanting to be known as just the guy who came from, from Sean McVay's tree. I was talking with one of these Olympic athletes for ski jumping about how she got the courage up to, to jump the first time. She said, I was four or five years old. The only reason I did it is because I was motivated to be better than my siblings who had already done it. Now, I know those coaches aren't related, but it's yeah. kind of like a sibling thing. Like, you don't want to be known just for that dude. You want to be better than that guy, even though you love him, more than you want to be better than anybody else. And I'm sure there's a, a healthy amount of that going on inside of him. I, I, think it's, I think it's all – I think that's a great, great point. You know, he wants credit for who he is. Um, and he's not even one of those guys who says, hey, look at me. He just, you know, this is, America's going to get to know Zach Taylor a little bit, and they're going to think of him as the guy next door. Uh, he's, he's got four kids. Uh, he lives in a kind of a tightly packed suburban neighborhood, cool neighborhood. The day I, I was with him and I wrote about this, uh, you know, I, I inched onto his street and there was a deer in the middle of the road. And this deer in the middle of the road would not move. So I had to go very, very slowly around the deer. And when I was passing them at three or four miles an hour, I looked over and that deer looked right at me and said, hey, buddy, this is my street. Leave me alone. And I just said, man, this is a city deer right here. 
And I said, man, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm three, uh, 13 minutes away from Paul Brown stadium and uh, there's a deer that won't move anyway. Anyway, just an uh, interesting little time with Zach Taylor. Um, I think the one game nugget about this game that interests me right now is that it looks like, it looks like Tyler Higby, the tight end for the Rams who really emerged late in the season will not play for the Rams in this game. And that I think is going to be a very big factor in this game. We only have one game to go on, but it, it looked like Kendall Blanton played that role pretty well. And I don't want to undersell how important Higby has been because he's been consistently not great, but consistently really good and been there for him. Blanton's one game, the last game he filled in pretty well. One other place my mind went there, they don't throw to the running backs very often in that Rams offense. So that kind of role where the, the tight end is maybe he's not the primary, but you can hit him for seven, eight yards. They don't do that with the backs a lot. So I think you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure on Blanton to play that role when he hasn't had to do it very much. You know, the reason why I think that the Tyler Higby absence is going to be so big is that you just saw as this season went on how much more respect that Matthew Stafford had for Tyler Higby how much more opportunity he gave Tyler Higby. And look, numbers don't say absolutely everything, but in the last three games of the regular season, he went to Tyler Higby. He targeted him 23 times. And before he got hurt in the playoffs, he targeted him 14 more times. So this was a guy over the last six games you know, he, he, he tries to hit six times a game on average. And, Paul, I look at this and I say, I like Blanton and targeted five times in the championship game, caught all five balls. So that helps to be able to have a guy like that in reserve. But I think the Tyler Higby absence could be big. Makes me think that they're going to have to use Odell Beckham Jr. all the more and also Van Jefferson because maybe Cooper Cup can have another game where he has 12 or 14 or 15 catches. But let's let's say maybe the Bengals are good at taking that away. Uh, the number one tight end isn't going to be there. So OBJ came through big time in the NFC title game. Maybe he can do that again. And I, I think they'll need Van Jefferson to play a bigger role too. No question about it. Odell Beckham targeted 19 times in the last two games. And, you know, the other thing, Paul, you always heard this about Beckham. Target him early. Do not let him go three or four series without seeing the ball because then he gets into the slump-shouldered OBJ. You know, so, and I think this team has been very, very conscious of doing that. So, um, I, I, I want to I, I to go over a couple of stories that I uh, – told in the column this week that I'm curious to get your reaction. The first one is I describe how the Bengals on Saturday night before every game or on the night before every game, because not every game is on Sunday um, on the night before every game, they play quarterback jeopardy. And it's uh, it's interesting because it's, it's clearly, you know, to them, this is a time to, um, you know, let loose a little bit to relax a little bit. And as Zach Taylor was telling me, 
to basically learn in a different way. I wrote something in my column this week about Nathaniel Hackett, uh, the uh, 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 quarterback coach, or the, the former offensive coordinator, excuse me, of the Green Bay Packers, turned head coach of the Denver Broncos, is going to hire on his staff a coach for the coaches, a teacher for the teachers. And he's going he's gonna to have them, he's going to go over how they use technology and how they teach their players. He's going to videotape every install, every teaching session, so that then he can review with the coaches, hey, here's how you might be able to do things a little bit better. I found that totally fascinating. But one of the ways that you make things a little better and make things a little bit more interesting is to make learning fun. And that's one of the things that the Bengals have done with this quarterback Jeopardy game. In essence, Saturday night before the AFC Championship game, which I wrote about, they put a quarterback Jeopardy board up, and there's five categories, five questions uh, per category, and all the questions are about the, the, the opposition that they're going to be facing this, this week and their own game plan. So uh, Joe Burrow, for instance, they, they, they do this from youngest to oldest, and Joe Burrow three coaches, three quarterbacks. Joe Burrow is the youngest guy in the room. So he always goes first. And the, the first question was, and I'll read this to you. Uh, Burrow says, Chiefs defense for 300. And here it is. List all the starters in the Chiefs sub package at linebacker and defensive back, the position they play, the key backups, and a strength and a weakness for each one. So Burrow goes, okay, linebackers, Willie Gay, Anthony Hitchens. Nick Bolton comes in in such and such uh, a situation. Uh, left corner, Chavarius Ward. Right corner, Legarius Sneed. The nickel is Mike Hughes. Rashad Fenton comes in there. And then he has Tyron Matthew and Juan Thornhill at safety. But Sorensen plays when the situation is such and such. And then and he went over each of the nine players about what he considered their strengths and weaknesses. So that was Chiefs defense for 300, and he got it right. And, Paul, I wanted to ask you, normally what I have grown up with is that, say, on Friday late in the day or on Saturday morning, the quarterbacks in an NFL on an NFL team would be handed a sheet of paper with 25 questions on it. And they would say, okay, tell me what the Chiefs' tendency is uh, when they bring in their dime package, you know, or something like that. And then you've got to write down the answer. The the coach takes it, grades the test, blah, blah, blah. This is so different, and it seems to me to be so modern, like, you know, learning should be fun. But what did you think when when you read that? Love it. That, to me, Peter, it taps into two things that are really smart and also really helpful. And as I've gotten older and tried to be good at this, at this crazy business, I've found one of the things that's really helped me is when I'm forced to say things out loud and I'll often do it to myself or do it with myself, like with uh, ski jumping, I've studied the rules. I've watched, I watched it on TV. I've listened to my analysts talk about it, but I've found I'll, I'll get by myself. And if I force myself to say out loud, okay, what are the rules that matter the most go 
and I have to say it, that's the best test of how well I know it. If I can say out loud what I think I have a good grasp of, then I really know it. And whoever set that up, I think it's really smart because it's testing them at the best way. If they have a great grasp of those players on the other side and what they're doing, they'll be able to say it. And I, I think it tests them better than just writing it. The other thing that's fun is all these quarterback rooms, maybe not all of them, the majority of them, these guys are good friends. They enjoy each other. They respect each other. And even though it's fun, they don't want either one of the two other guys in the room to think they don't know what's coming on Sunday. And if they're tested in front of the peers that they, they value their opinion the most, they're probably smiling and laughing during it, but they know damn well, they don't want those two guys to think they're not really on top of it. So I think it's a wonderful way to learn. And I think it's a great way to tap into maybe fear is too strong a word, but they don't want those other two to think they're not really on top of this. So it's a brilliant move, I think. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The other thing I wanted to run off, run by you is I went over uh, to Athens, Ohio, in Southeast Ohio, where Ohio University is. The Burroughs raised their family in a town just outside Athens called the Plains. And I met Jimmy Burrow, Joe Burrow's dad, for lunch uh, after I rode to work with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, Zach Taylor. I met Jimmy Burrow for lunch over in, in the Plains at, uh, at, at their place, Gigi's, uh, which in essence, Gigi's Country Kitchen is the place to eat in the Plains. So I met Jimmy Burrow there. I actually had the Burrow, which is an omelet, a Western omelet, that every time he's back in town, Joe Burrow gets a few of them, I guess. So... Anyway, I, I, was, I was sitting there, I was talking with Jimmy Burrow, and I don't know how we got on the subject, but he said, you know, I'm really in favor of kids, like, like Joe was, playing all the sports. You know, when he was in middle school, in fall he would play football, winter he'd play basketball, spring he'd play uh, baseball, 
and he started playing AAU basketball a lot. He would throw with his receivers a lot. He was always playing something, and it varied. At the end of his eighth grade year going into high school, there was a lot of pressure on him because of the competitiveness of their AAU basketball team and because of how much he wanted to work to be able to play quarterback. They had a good team at Athens High School, and he really wanted to play. So he ended up giving up baseball. And, and Jimmy Burroughs said, if you ask Joe, his biggest regret about his life so far is that he did not play baseball in high school. He said he loved baseball, but the time demands were so much. But, but his whole point was, I think it's fantastic that kids play all the sports. And I'm fully supportive of that and all that. So anyway, what was really, really interesting is that when I said to Jimmy Burrow, if Joe at that point, when he's really starting to have to make the cut, all right, baseball's out. If you, if you said to him, okay, you've got to pick one sport right now, Jimmy Burrow said, I think he'd pick basketball. Hmm. And he said he was uncanny at shooting threes. And he loved practicing that. He loved shooting the three. And he said, I could see him being a guard or an off guard in the NBA, being a three-point shooting specialist. So could you imagine Kyle Korver goes out, Joe Burrow goes in, you know? I mean, it just, I, I found that really, really interesting. And look, who knows what would have happened. But Paul, give me your thought about that, about not concentrating on one sport like in your middle school and high school years? I think, I think it's the best thing to do. And I, I grew up in an era, and I'm, I'm kind of dating myself here a little bit, Peter, but, I mean, when, when football season was over on Friday, basketball started Monday. When basketball season was over in March, pitchers and catchers met in the gym on Monday. So it's like it, it always used to be that way. I can tell you as a dad now, a kid, uh, two sons who play sports, it is so hard for kids that even want to play three sports to do so because there are so many opportunities to, to play the other sport that you're best at year round. And sometimes the opportunity turns into a demand from the coaches. So like playing two right now, Peter is really kind of like what playing three was uh, when I grew up, yeah. uh, but I'm a, I'm a giant fan of it. I know that these kids can throw the ball 12 months out of the year now with all the camps and clinics, especially in the warm weather States. But Joe Burrow's one example. I think Justin Herbert played a number of sports throughout high school yeah. Uh, if your parents support it and uh, you enjoy it, I mean, I think that the number one best thing they can do is put their best sport away for a couple months and go do something else. You know what I found, Paul? I coached girls softball in Montclair, New Jersey for a total of 17 years. Seven of those years, I coached travel softball. So there was a big commitment to it. And this was at the time of year in the spring when I could carve out my own schedule, because if I knew like I got to go to Seattle to write about the Seahawks during a mini camp, I would not schedule my team in a tournament that weekend or, or whatever. So I had the ability to, to basically create my own thing. And so I had three or four kids on my team that when I coached one year, I coached the 14 and under team. Uh, which had three excellent soccer players, 
Two of them went on to play in college. They went on to play soccer in college. One of them went on to be a, a college shortstop. So um, what, I, what I did was at the beginning of the year when I was making my schedule, I called the coach of the select team that they were on. And I said, look, I have some freedom and I've got these three girls who are on your team who are also on my softball team. They're great kids and I don't want to cut them, you know, but if they miss three or four weekends in a row or whatever, we need to have a talk. So <clears throat> I need to find out when your must, uh, when you must have them, one of your biggest things. And I'll make sure I schedule around it. And so uh, some of the parents thought that was a little bit too, too much. But look, I'm not trying to be pick my sport or you don't play. I'm just trying to help these kids sure. navigate a very, very difficult time in their lives sports-wise. And that's kind of the way I did it. I realize not everybody can do it. But anyway, I, that's... That's neither here nor there. But when I was listening to Jimmy Burrow talk about the jam-packed schedule, I immediately thought about that and thought that I feel bad for a lot of these kids mm -hmm. who want to play all these sports. And look, I was there, Paul. You have coaches say, if you miss one thing, you're off the team or if, you sure. know, whatever. And it's just, it's not fair to these kids anyway. No, it's true. 100% true. And really, if you think about it, Peter, all these travel teams, no matter the sport, I mean, most of these kids that are committed at that level think they want to play in college. And I always say, say to my kids, um, all of our friends, if you're good enough to play in college, you're going to have to make a decision between 18 and 22. How much do I really like the sport because of how much time it's taking? It yeah. becomes 24-7. It's 12 months out of the year. If you're that good and that committed, you can figure out that part of it later. You don't want a kid to have that conversation with him or herself when he or she is 13 years old. Do I really like this that much? Because it feels like a job. It'll feel like a job in college if you're good enough to get there. Don't let that feeling creep in during those years before college. Paul, let's take a couple of minutes to talk about the coaches that have now, we, we now have all nine coaching vacancies filled basically in the span of about, I think about 12 days. Um, I, I wonder, is there a coach who got hired, who you're intrigued by, who you think was a really good slash interesting hire uh, that, that when you saw that you say, that really kind of fascinates me right there. I think that's a good pick for that job. But there certainly is a, a pattern going on right now, Peter. It feels like all these coaching cycles, even though they're different names slotted into the different cities where these things come and go. And right now, young offensive minds who haven't been a head coach yet, who've been around great quarterbacks, they're getting opportunities. Uh, the one that really interests me the most is Nathaniel Hackett in Denver because Aaron Rodgers is so damn good that you have to wonder, okay, how much, how much does any one coach have to do with the kind of numbers he's putting up. And of course he is somewhat attached to the success of Aaron Rodgers. So it makes me wonder, and I'm intrigued that way. I also found that job to be the most intriguing Peter, whoever got it, because 
Denver has so much going for it right now as a team yeah. defensively. They've been so boring and lacked anything dynamic on offense going from quarterback to quarterback to quarterback. I want to see what this coach does at quarterback for this team that's ready to win on defense, but not only has been not productive on offense, they've been boring to watch. Like they're not a team that you tune in to watch at all, unless you love the Broncos. So um, how much of that green Bay success had to do with him and what can he do with a team that's ready to win? If he can do something with that offense where they failed. Before I move on to my team, the one that fascinates me, I'm going to just say that when I saw Nathaniel Hackett go to Denver, I had uh, come up with a theory toward the end of December in which I said, I don't know what's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers. But here's to me what would be the most fascinating thing. Nathaniel Hackett getting the job in Denver. Aaron Rodgers getting traded to Denver for, and look, we can make up anything, but let's just say three ones and Jerry Judy. Now that is a lot. It's four ones, yeah. four legitimate ones. So, so, and then, you know, an F, make an effort to at least uh, maybe sign and trade or figure out a way to try to get Devontae Adams. Could they? I don't know if they could or not might be too rich for their blood. They're going to have enough receiving talent there without Devontae Adams, but be that as it may. But the reason why I think it is really a fascinating thing is that I believe that the AFC, even without Aaron Rodgers, might be the most stacked conference for quarterbacks, Yeah, maybe since the AFL-NFL merger. And that's because, and all these guys are under the age of 26. You know, you've got, uh, and, and look, I'm a Mac Jones guy. I don't know if it's going to work, but, but, but let's forget Mac Jones. But you've got Josh Allen. You've got uh, Lamar Jackson. Uh, you've got Patrick Mahomes. You've got Justin Herbert. And you've got good quarterbacks capable of great performances. For instance, um, you know, you've got Derek Carr and you know, you've got obviously Lamar, we talk about Lamar Jackson, but if he comes back to where he was a couple of years ago, he is right up on the level of Mahomes, Josh Allen. But right now Mahomes, Josh Allen, Burrow, I mean, that is a tremendous Justin Herbert to be able to, to jump those guys, you know, for like the next three years. And let's just say Rogers got traded to Denver. I mean, that's a tremendously difficult hurdle to go over. If you've got to pass all three uh, or three or four of those quarterbacks. And it just changes the, how the AFC West would, would, would feel, Peter, late afternoon, Sunday nights, Monday nights. Think about it. Denver yeah. was a player again. Sold-out stadium there in Denver just feels right. Late in the afternoon on Sunday or on Sunday night. What's happening in Los Angeles with Justin Herbert, what Mahomes is doing. Like, I mean, quarterback-wise, yeah, it's great. It's fun for those teams. But just as a fan of the NFL who likes a giant stage on TV and the big windows, that would be, that'd be really cool. Okay, last two points. 
I want to make. One is um, <clears throat> I'm going to pick the Super Bowl. I'm going to give you the opportunity to make a pick if you would like. But I also just want to say that I think this is going to be a really interesting Super Bowl week because there's so many issues confronting the league right now. The Stephen Ross accusations, the Flores lawsuit, um, the fact that the NFL has basically admitted the Rooney rule isn't working. As Maryland coach Mike Loxley uh, told me over the weekend, it's not the Rooney rule, it's the Rooney suggestion. So there's a lot going on in the NFL right now. So people should watch for all that in addition to the game. Uh, finally, I'm going to make a pick. I'm going to pick Cincinnati with an asterisk. I believe that <clears throat> if the Bengals can block the Rams the way they blocked Kansas City, which wasn't perfect, but it also was not uh, – It's not. it wasn't a free-for-all like uh, it was in Tennessee. <clears throat> if they can <clears throat> block them up front, I think the Bengals – I just think the Bengals all in all right now are a little bit of a better team, and I, and I would give the edge slightly to Joe Burrow over Matthew Stafford at quarterback. Good pick. I'm going with Cincinnati as well, Peter, and I, I kind of thought I'd be going out on a limb here, but it's going to be two for two here with the Bengals picks. I went looking for one thing, Peter. I went looking for a tiebreaker outside of the quarterback position because I, I think these teams are, are super even. I think it's going to be tight, and I love both of the quarterbacks. And I thought if I focused on either one of the quarterbacks, it would just be way too positive. So I went outside of that, and I'm like, okay, what, what's the one thing that's really stood out about either one of these two teams that, that I could latch on to and say, you know what, I believe in that. That's why this close game is going to go their direction. And I can't get out of my mind how good the Bengal defense was against Patrick Mahomes yeah. after they gave up those first three touchdowns. The way they found a way to confuse and frustrate him, uh, basically eliminate Hill and Kelsey. Uh, then the week before, they gave Tannehill a horrible game. So I'm leaning on the Bengal defense, not to make Matthew Stafford look bad. I think both the quarterbacks are going to play well. Uh, but I, I think they can bring him one level down just enough so Cincinnati pulls out the win. I really like your theory on that, Paul. I, I think that the untold story, even though some people are telling it, relatively speaking, the untold story of why the Bengals are here right now. It's Trey Hendrickson and his friends wreaking havoc yeah. on that defensive front. But looking forward to the game, Paul, looking forward to a little bit more of Paul Burmeister on NBC, there USA Network, CNBC. Peacock. I'm fired up to hear you a little bit, Paul. <laughs> Peter, I, I appreciate you being, as you say, a, a, a winter – Olympics nerd. We have some of those at my house as well that I know will always be tuning in. So nice to know there's a, at least a couple more out there. Yeah. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? 
Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, anyway, thanks a lot, and we will dissect the game uh, next week, look ahead to the NFL's offseason. Uh, but first, let's get into my conversation with Zach Taylor, the Bengals coach. To set it up, I met Zach Taylor in his home, at his home, at about 5.20, 5.25 a.m. on the Tuesday after the AFC Championship game. We got in his car, took me on a little tour of his neighborhood, then uh, stopped for coffee, and what resulted is about a 24-minute conversation that you were about to hear. So here's me, Zach Taylor, in the darkness of pre-dawn Cincinnati. You know, a year ago, this occurs to me, you got a quarterback who is has got a big knee injury, and he didn't even have his surgery until December. You've got... Uh, you don't, nobody, you've never even heard of Evan McPherson, yeah. you know, and all these free agents haven't happened yet. So I'm just curious when you look at it, you know, to the football world, this is all sort of exploded. In your eyes, this was part of kind of a carefully constructed plan, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, it's, you could see it as a coach last year in our team. You could see what Joe Burrow uh, was doing to our offense and what T. Higgins was capable of. And we already knew, you know, some of the guys we already had, C.J., Mixon, Tyler Boyd. Um, yeah, here we go. It's closed. Yeah, but there's yeah. another one downtown. Yeah. So uh, offensively, you started to feel like when we got into a good rhythm, we, we, could be, we could be pretty good. And then you looked at our defense and you saw some of the key pieces, Jesse Bates and Von Bell, the linebackers, Logan, Jermaine, Sam Hubbard, and you're like, okay, there's some there's some stuff here that we can really work off of, and if we hit on some of these pieces, we, we could have a really good team. Now, to say that you're going to the Super Bowl is impossible to know. I think early in training camp, we felt like we had a, a unique group, a special group that was capable of, of really cool things, but you never really know how these guys are going to come off the injuries, how everyone's going to gel together. And I think, I think in December, coming off the Raiders game after the bye, we felt like, okay, we, we can really – we're what we hoped we would be, and we're capable of making a run here if, if things go away, and it's worked out that way. Hendrickson, to me, has been a revelation to the rest of the world. I think everybody looked at him kind of like Lawrence Taylor and Leonard Marshall, that – you know, <clears throat> Leonard Marshall was a really good player in part because he had Lawrence Taylor, Carl Banks, compliment. He was a complimentary piece, and same with Hendrickson because of Cam Jordan and 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 the good defense in New Orleans. But he is that piece that makes people around him better, isn't he? 
he's he's been tremendous, you know, and um, just his effort is relentless. And and I really think um, we have that Sam Hubbard on the other side, where, where Sam, if you watch the end of that Kansas City game, I mean, he's rushing for eight night. Both of them are chasing Mahomes out of bounds, and Sam's getting those sacks. And um, so to see those guys work in tandem has been awesome. Uh, can't discount the guys in the middle too, DJ and Larry and BJ Hill and those guys, but. Trey has been, uh, you know, all the sacks he's provided, all the all the false starts he's provided, all the holding calls he's provided. Um, you know, he's he's been a tremendous addition for us. Nobody paid any attention to the BJ Hill trade because basically you were getting rid of a guy who just hadn't really worked out that well for the team uh, in Billy Price. But I, it, to me, BJ Hill is the kind of complimentary player that every good defense, the rotational defensive lineman, you have to have a bunch of those guys. He's a he's a starter, really, who was a third D tackle for us, you know, and now that, that Larry's been injured against the Raiders, he's come up in that Larry Ogunjobi, yeah. Yeah, and now he's he's been the starter and he's played like a starter all season. You know, we've really had those three starters in there. BJ was just the third guy that usually went in, but um, he just he fits what we want from a culture standpoint, personality-wise, work ethic-wise. Um, he loves football. He's willing to do anything, which which just showed by the role that he was in. And um, so it's no surprise that he's had the production he's had, and um, he's just kept his head down and worked hard. And, and we love that guy and happy he's part of this. Um, what he and, he and Jermaine Pratt, our starting linebacker, were college roommates at NC State. Okay, and I didn't know that until we traded for him. Wow. Jermaine, Jermaine starts going crazy, and, and then we found out they were called roommates. Wow. I talked to BJ the other day, and it's funny. I said, weren't you a little bummed out, you know, when you find out you're you're getting traded to a team that has lost for so long? He goes, no, I was thrilled. Because <laughs> he knew he was going to play, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and I think I think the word's gotten out from the players, you know, that, that our guys love playing here, you know? Yeah. And, um, whether whether they work out with the guy in the offseason and, and that work gets out or um, you just see the videos of our guys in the locker rooms having fun. But but the part that people don't always get to see is how hard these guys work when they're in there. And so that's why I love that they enjoy the wins and, and the process of what we're going through right now because um, they've put in work to get here and they continue every single day um, to, to – they haven't changed one second. They're consistent with their approach and it's really paying off for us. What did Mike Brown say to you at the end of last season when you've coached here two years, you've got six wins? In a lot of places, you would have gotten whacked after two years. Sure. Well, I, I think we all understood that we need to start winning a lot more games than we were. And, but the, the beauty of working for Mike and, and the family here is you meet almost on a daily basis. So there is, there is no earth-shattering um, conversation that needs to be had after a season because you have you have that conversation every day in the offseason training camp during the season and so we're always on the same page um, to where there's not these big state of the union um, meetings that need to have where, where there's been no communication for, for weeks or months and um, I wouldn't want to have it any other way you know it's it, it makes sure we're always on the same page um, and we're in this thing together and it's it's been a lot of fun to be a part of so there was never a Hey, you're coming back next year. Was it just kind of understood? Um, yeah, on my end, it was, it was. You know, there's always unknowns in a coach. You know, you should never be surprised by anything. But 
um, I always felt like uh, I was going to get another opportunity, and it's worked out that way. Uh, what did you learn, would you say, from Sean McVay when you were with him with the Rams? Well, that conversation would be days long, I think. <laughs> but, but the number one thing is that um, the, the culture he created, and what that really means is just the, the daily process. It, it's a little bit different than um, I think a lot of places, just in how he does things and, and how much information maybe he gives the players and the coaches, but um, everybody feels like they're a part of it. and They all know why we're doing everything. Why are we meeting this long? Why are we walking through? Why do we practice this hard on a Wednesday and this hard on Thursday and this hard on a Friday? And why are we traveling like this? And um, So everybody always feels like they know exactly why we're doing everything. And that's the same thing for a play call. He, he just goes so in-depth on why I'm calling this play, what coverage we're hoping to get, uh, what coverage is worst against, and, and what you need to do to help us out on the play. And so guys have just totally bought into that. Um, you know, he, he made it he, he made it really fun to walk in the building every single day. And he was demanding of everybody, and everybody worked and got their best. But you felt so empowered working for him. Um, just because of how he communicated with everybody. And so you wanted to give him your best every single day. And, and uh, I think that's why they've been to two Super Bowls and what is this, five years, I guess. And that that's no surprise because of what he gets out of everybody in that building. Personally, what was your relationship like? It was, it was good. You know, we, we didn't know each other very well. We'd met maybe twice before he hired me. Um, but then once, you, once you're around Sean, you know, you always – you always feel close to him because his personality is always so outgoing and so positive and so inclusive. And um, he's the same whether he's in a team meeting on the sidelines of a game and a Bible study on a Tuesday morning in the offseason. I mean, he's the same guy really every single day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, he lived down in, uh, um, God, where does he live? Uh, he lives in Encino, I think. Yeah, right? I think he lives yeah. in Encino. I lived in Thousand Oaks. I, I could walk to work. Yeah. I lived on that Cal Lutheran campus. So, you know, he's he's uh, no kids with Veronica, and I'm up there with four kids out there in Thousand Oaks. So we, we didn't exactly, um, you know, go to dinner every night together. But um, Sean and I got really close over those two years, and, and we've really stayed in touch. And, um, again, I, you, you just – anybody I think who's worked for him or played for him would, would not be able to say enough great things about Sean. Is it – just bizarre and weird that in the biggest game of your life you're going to be facing him a guy who who, who helped you on this path I think it's a good story for everybody you know and and when you see the result of that game it's okay I mean, you know you know a lot of these coaches and and some of the players most of the players are gone to be honest with you uh but then that's that's gone you know and now it's just for the media to tell that story and and we have no focus on that. That doesn't. We've played them before. I've played against my brother before. I've played. You know, you've played against at this point, ten years in the NFL. You, you've every week you, you're close to other people on the staff or other players on the other team, and um, so that's just part of being in the NFL. Um, when you think how far you guys have come in this year, are you shocked? Are you surprised? I mean, the whole world is thinking today this week as the Super Bowl prep starts what in the world are the Bengals doing here yeah no I, I think um, it was impossible to know in training camp we knew we had the right character and we had enough talent how is it going to gel together 
And as you get really to the midway point of the season, it's okay. You know what this league is about. It's about getting hot in December. And so we started playing really good football after the bye. Um, and we felt like, okay, if, if we can if we can just learn from some of these mistakes we've made early in the season, anything is possible. And, and that's really um, how it's played out for us. Anything's been possible. We got hot at the right time. We're winning these playoff games because we're winning these close games and, and our team has been situational masters, which we preach every Friday. We have a situational masters meetings. Jordan Kovacs and Brad Craig Thorpe present uh, situations that happen around the league so that we can learn from other people's experiences. You don't have all the time in the week to work through every situation, so you got to catalog it all away. And, and our guys have done a great job retaining that information and helping us win a lot of ball games with it. Did you do situational masters on the 14 seconds left in the Dallas playoff game? Well, that's we've talked through those situations before, but then specifically, you're going to use that as an example. Okay, we've we've done this before. Here's exactly uh, what they were doing or, or what we would do, and and uh, again. A lot of people have to react in that moment. Dallas has to react in that moment. They had their plan. Um, and so we get a chance to step back in the meeting and, and analyze it and overanalyze it and show our players exactly. How uh, many seconds would you say that you would you would have in that particular thing? Sean Payton told me, he said, that should be 12 seconds in that particular play. But yeah. Dak should run two. Dak went two steps too far in Sean's, in Sean's view. I find that a totally, totally interesting thing because yeah. it ended up being the last play of their season, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't want to get into yeah. judging what they did because um, – but, but, yeah, usually 12 seconds is, is – now there's a lot of things that factor into it, obviously, with, with the official yeah. and making sure the ball gets spotted and the other team sometimes accidentally kicking the ball and the, right. the ball goes. So that's – you know, we, we always talk in great detail about our receivers and backs with the possession of the ball. You maintain possession of that ball – until you can give it to the official. You know, you don't toss it to them. We always say they're going to drop it every time. You know, it's so that will lose seconds for you. So, again, you, you over-communicate. And if you watch our guys in two-minute drill, they do. I'm so proud of them because every time a guy gets tackled in two-minute, you see him sprinting to the hash with the ball in his hand looking for the official. And, and we've never really been in the position where the official hasn't been there yet. You know, and, and so – um, you know, like they did, they, they gave the ball to the center and put it down. But we, we just – that's never come up for us. So you, we very easily that, – that could have happened incorrectly for – because that situation doesn't – you practice it, but it's never really happened in a game necessarily. Yeah. And so how do you react in that moment? Your relationship with Joe Burrow, how has it gotten to this point where you guys really seem to be so much on the same page? Well – I think the, the beauty of Joe is he's he's honest with you. And so he, he's not one of those guys that, hey, Joe, do you like this play? Yeah, I like it. Because he thinks that's what you want to hear. He's so confident in himself um, and his abilities and what he knows that if he doesn't like it, he'll tell you. Like, no, that's not, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable with that play. I'd rather this play. And and I might not like that play. And I may say, no, that's, this is why I don't like it. Let's, let's move on to this play. You know, and so... You get that feedback from him to where I feel like by the time we're calling a game on Sunday, we've ironed out maybe some plays early in the week that I loved. Myself and Brian Callahan, we schemed up and we feel good about it and it didn't look great during the week and Joe doesn't have a lot of confidence in it. And it's, let's bag that. We don't need to do something that the quarterback breaks the huddle with 10 seconds left and doesn't have confidence in. And so we, we've just had a lot of those conversations over two years to make sure we can get to that point where you tell me exactly how you feel 
when the game's on the line, who do you think we go to in the fourth quarter last week in an overtime? Joe, what? Here's here's the five plays I'm thinking of. What are the two you like the most? Can you, you tell know? me tell me a story and be as specific as you can of a play either in the fourth quarter or overtime last week that you used that you really felt that you were you were on the same page with, but Joe gave you his input and really loved. Yeah, I, I think uh, we ran Dragon Lion, which every coach in the league is going to know what Dragon Lion is. It's double slants on the Lion side, and it's a slant flat on the Dragon side. And in overtime... What's the Dragon side? Dragon is a slant and a flat. Okay. Okay, and that was what Jamar did. Jamar and the tight end did that. T. Higgins and, and Tyler Boyd ran the Lion side, which is double, double slant. And, um, you know, he... He had thrown the ball to Jamar in that situation um, for, a, for a DPI earlier in the game. Uh, but this time, he thought the way it would play out, T would get the ball. He said, this is this is how I want it called. This is where I want everybody at. I think T's going to get this ball and throw it to T. I wouldn't say it played out exactly how we thought, which is oftentimes how it happens because they roll decks their coverages. But T got the ball. He had the confidence that call this play. I'm going to get the ball to T. And, and T made the play that got us in the field goal range, and, and we won the game in overtime. What is so interesting about you would think that in that particular case, I'm going to my guy Jamar Chase, and you went to T Higgins so much in that game. Yeah, and, and so much we do go to Jamar, and we were going to Jamar, you know, and, and they were trying to take that away because they understood that too. So um, that's the beauty is the ball could have gone to Jamar very easily, but based on how they were playing all other coverages, he thought – this ball will end up going to T because of how they're playing the coverages and how they're looking at Jamar. And, and, um, and did so, that happen right on the sidelines while you were discussing plays, or when did that uh, it happen? Was, it was probably when we when we thought we had another possession in the fourth quarter. You know, so it, it wasn't like going into overtime necessarily. It was it was in the fourth early in the fourth quarter. Okay. You know, these, these were the conversations we were having, and so so then for me, you know, as a play caller, I've got to I've got to get. You know, what are my next uh, five or six passes going to be? Well, they, they may not come to fruition for, for another quarter, you know, the way the game plays out. Because i got the runs to mix in there. You might get a lot of third downs or get back on track, second tens that override your first and second down normal calls. So I've usually got on my sheet after talking to Joe and talking to Callahan, um, those five or six calls we're going to get to next. And sometimes they don't come up for a couple more possessions. Right. Uh, but that was one, you know, we had, we had talked in depth with, with Joe Burrow. America sees Joe Burrow now and sees after LSU and now what they're seeing now that he's afraid of nothing mm -hmm. and he doesn't feel maybe pressure like some other people feel. Analyze Joe Burrow, the person, like the mental side of him and how important that is. He, he is so prepared that that's where the confidence comes from. I don't see one ounce of false confidence with him. Where I'm trying to, I'm trying to put on this front to show everybody I'm ready because that's what I think it's supposed to look like. There, there's not a single ounce of that, and um, everybody in this building who's been around him every day knows that because they see how he works, they see how he prepared he is on a Wednesday, um, they see how prepared he is on a Saturday. Uh, we say see it in the Saturday meetings when we're we're doing our final quarterback meetings and we're playing Jeopardy and uh, one of our assistants Brad Craig Thorpe puts together a Jeopardy format with questions on Chiefs defense third down red zone normal down run calls what are the checks so it's all you click the boxes and you don't know what's coming at you and it's the game plan question 
and just you get to hear him talk and everybody in that room knows this guy's ready to roll. How does Jeopardy work? Does, is there a host up there? Or yeah, is there... Brad, Brad Craigthorpe is the host. Not up there, not up front. He runs yeah. the computer right. and projects up. And then, okay, I want protections. for. And who's in the room? Uh, all the quarterbacks. So that's Brandon Allen and uh, Jake uh, uh, Browning. Myself, Brian Callahan, our offense coordinator, Dan Pitcher, our quarterback coach, and Brad Craigthorpe, our assistant receiver coach. And... Uh, and how do you pick who answers the questions? It goes in order by age. So the youngest goes first. Um, and so that's Joe. Joe goes first. And then we go around the room. Brad is the moderator. So Brad makes the questions so he doesn't, he doesn't get to play. Uh, but I'm, I go last. I'm the, I'm the oldest. You know, at 38 years old, I'm, I'm the, the oldest in the room. You're the I, oldest I, I got, in the room? I got Brian by, I don't know, probably a couple months. Um, <laughs> and so it's... It's fun. It's it's for all of us. Uh, we all get a chance to, you know, there might be a question that pops up that someone thinks they're getting right and it's wrong, and then we get a chance to talk through, like, okay, here's why the check is this, you know, and, and you get a chance to clarify a lot of things at the last second where we go through the whole call sheet before that, before we play the game. We go through the whole call sheet. Um, would but, I be able may to, overlook something. Would I be able to use an exact question from Kansas City? That yeah. Craig Thorpe used. Yeah, sure. Could I? Sure. Could I like be in touch with you and maybe maybe I could just ask him. Yeah. Give me a question and then give me an answer yeah. that somebody in the room would have had to answer. Sure. I'd love to be able to give an example yeah. of that in yeah. the story. Joe Burrow has gone into Alabama and riddled Nick Saban's defense. He's he's played in a bunch of big games, four and zero against the Ravens and Steelers this year. All that. How do you think he will react when he walks out onto the field at SoFi he's, in the Super Bowl? He's built for these stages. You know, I think um, he's played in state championship games in high school. He's played in national championship games in college. He always knew he was going to be on this stage in the NFL. This, is, this isn't, um, you know, we, I don't like the word dream necessarily. Like when, when I drive home and dream of being in the Super Bowl and Joe Burrow sits at home dreaming, it's something he's envisioned and worked towards and expected it to happen, I'm sure, if you ask him that. And so he's not surprised. He knows he was meant to be here. He prepared for this, and he led his team to this moment. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm very confident that he'll walk on that field a very confident quarterback. It's, to me, when I look at Burrow, I see a guy who treats every game exactly the same like he doesn't look at playing Patrick Mahomes oh geez yeah we got Mahomes this week I mean he deep down says Mahomes has got me this week Uh, and not to demean anybody but that's just the feeling I get watching Burrow from afar yeah I, I think he he is so consistent with his approach and his preparation and how he approaches every game and and I think a small window into that is watch him in the shotgun on every rep and the consistent approach he takes to get set before he calls for the ball. You know, and that just shows you've been around a lot of quarterbacks where a lot of guys, you know, they're late getting signals and, and sometimes they're standing upright and they call for the snap or sometimes they're crouched down and they call for the snap. He, he has this process where he just locks in before he snaps the ball where he gets in a body position. And just having coached quarterbacks and watching quarterbacks for a long time I know how rare that is for it to be the exact same every single time. And you would think that's a crazy thing to say, but I think if you watch just quarterbacks at all levels everywhere, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. 
Um, but you watch him, and he is locked in on every play and so consistent for however many reps he's taken this year, that that is just part of Joe. He's, this is my approach. This is what I do before I take a snap. This is my approach before I get ready for a game. This is what I do every single time. This is what I do before I walk out on the field every single time. You know what I mean? So um, he's just, he's got a process he follows and it works well for him. Here's the one other thing, Zach. When you guys were down 21 to three the other day, they they showed a lot of close-ups of you and a lot of close-ups of Burrow. And I would not have known that it was 21. I would not have known who was it, if you were ahead 21-3 or if they were ahead 21-3. Yeah. You guys were very, very flatline at that point. Did you have any, like, holy crap things, thoughts going through your head at that time? No, because we've, we've unfortunately, but fortunately, been in that situation a lot. And we were down 14 to nothing on a Thursday night against Jacksonville, 14 points. Whereas they, we stopped them on the goal line. They chose to go for it instead of kicking a field goal with two seconds left to go up 17 or 21, and we stopped them. So it was a 14-point game at halftime. We came back and won. Uh, we were down 24 to nothing to the Chargers. We came back in the fourth quarter, 24-22, and we fumbled for a touchdown or else we were about to take the lead. Um, we've been down so many times. The Chiefs had us down 11 the first time. So when we were down 11 at this halftime, what do you think we're saying at halftime? This is the exact position we were in the last time we played them. We all know what the recipe was to win it. we got to execute that again, and that's exactly what happened. Held them to three points again for the second time, and the offense scored enough points, and, and uh, Evan, again, kicked the game-winning field goal. So the confidence in this team, we always want to be up 14, but if we're down 14, I promise you we will not flinch. My thanks to Zach Taylor, the coach of the Bengals, and to Paul Burmeister, my partner in crime at NBC. So grateful to both of them for their time this week. So enjoy the Super Bowl. Uh, we will uh, dissect it again next week, right at this time. Same bat channel, same bat station. Come back. We'll have a good time. Enjoy the game. And thanks for listening to the Peter King Podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.